Awesome, awesome. Welcome. Have a seat. I hope that, uh, I love Christmas at Woodlands Church. I hope you take advantage of every service and every opportunity that comes up in this Christmas season to be able to talk about uh, this incredible event of history, Jesus, uh, God himself entering into human history and um, being our savior, our forgiver, our leader, our friend. And uh, there's so many wonderful things. I love the lights coming in, everything. Just awesome, awesome place to be. Well, you know, I'm kind of a a buff on trivia. And uh, so a guy came up to me uh, about a year ago, and he said, I, I, I found the ultimate bit of trivia for you. I said, what? He said, I found out, get this, I found out that 200 times a second around the clock, someone on planet Earth is typing into a computer search engine, basically the question, is God real? Isn't that amazing? 200 times a second, someone on the planet wanting to know from a computer, could God really be real? And when you think about it, it makes a bit of sense because that really is the ultimate question of life, isn't it? So much flows out of that. So much depends on that. There was a debate between a Christian and an atheist. Uh, The atheist was uh, Dr. William Provine. And during that debate, Dr. Provine said, look, I'm an atheist. I'll just be totally honest with you. If there is no creator, then five things are true. Number one, there's no evidence for God. Number two, there's no life after death. Number three, there's no absolute foundation for right or wrong. Number four, there's no absolute meaning for life. And number five, we really don't have free will. We're just biological machines. We think we have free will, but we really don't. We're just biological machines. So that's that's a lot of important stuff that flows out of the question of whether God is real. And yet, a declining number of Americans believe that God is real. When I was a freshman in high school, 1967, 98% of American adults believed that God is real. You know what the number is today? 81%. Lowest ever in American history. In fact, only 6 out of 10 Americans are sure that God exists. The numbers are starkest among the younger generation, the so-called Generation Z, where twice as many young people today call themselves atheists as members of my generation. So even though you have these kind of scary negative uh, statistics, there are some positive statistics going on at the same time. For instance, three out of four American adults say they want to grow spiritually. And nearly half of Americans say they're more open to God today than they were before the pandemic. In fact, I have a friend named Shane Pruitt, and Shane's ministry is to travel around the country and to speak to crowds of teenagers and college students. And he told me, he said, Lee, I've personally seen more college students and teenagers start to follow Jesus Christ in the last three years than in the previous 18 years of ministry combined. So there are some positive things going on as well. So I decided to write a book on this topic, Is God Real? Exploring this ultimate question of life. And I look at the affirmative evidence from science, from history, from philosophy, in a very accessible way that looks at the the fact that God does really exist. And then I deal with the the two biggest objections to the idea that God is real. Number one, if God is real, Why is there so much suffering in the world? And number two, if God is real, 
Why does he seem so hidden? And so the book just came out a few weeks ago. Uh, We have some copies here. If you want to get one after the service, I'll be glad to sign it maybe to a friend of yours for Christmas who's maybe spiritually curious or spiritually confused. We'd love to write him a little note of encouragement. All the proceeds, by the way, go to the church. Um, So I've, I've written this book, and in all, there are about 20 lines of evidence and arguments that point toward the existence of God, toward God being real. But I... Honestly, as a former atheist myself, I think there are really just two areas of modern science that are sufficient to establish that God is real. The first has a fancy name called cosmology. just means the study of the origin of the universe. Where did the universe come from in the first place? You know, for centuries, scientists believed that the universe was eternal. It was static. It always existed. But thanks to persuasive philosophical arguments and a series of scientific discoveries over the last 50 years concerning the expansion of the universe, virtually every scientist on the planet is convinced that the universe had a sudden beginning at some point in the past, whether more recent or distant past. They all agree the universe had a beginning at some point in the past. In fact, one of the most famous cosmologists is Dr. Alexander Vilenkin. He's at Tufts University at their cosmology center there. And he said, quote, all the evidence we have says the universe had a beginning. In fact, Dr. Vilenkin and two other prominent cosmologists have developed a theorem that says that any universe that is expanding on average through its history like ours must have had a beginning. And get this, Even if our universe turns out to be just a small part of a bigger multiverse, that multiverse itself must have had a beginning. And this has led to a very powerful argument for the existence of God. Been popularized by my friend, Dr. William Lane Craig, who has two earned PhDs, um, did his doctoral uh, uh, dissertation on this particular topic, written many books, debated many scholars on this topic, Uh, It's called the Kalam Cosmological Argument for the Existence of God. Fancy name, but it's a very simple argument. Here's how it goes. Number one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Now stop there. Can you think of anything that comes into existence that didn't have a cause behind it? No. Even the most famous skeptic of history, um, uh, David Hume, said, I never asserted so absurd a proposition as to say that anything might arise without a cause. So whatever begins to exist has a cause. Second, we now know the universe began to exist. And the conclusion, therefore, the universe has a cause. The Bible says the same thing. The Bible puts it this way in the very first verse, Genesis 1, verse 1, quote, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. That phrase, heavens and earth, is a Hebrew figure of speech called a mirism. It simply means that God created everything. So cosmology goes a long way toward establishing that God is real. But there's a common objection that people raise to this. They say, oh, well, if God created the universe, then who created God? That's usually followed by na 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 <laughs> Bet you never thought of that, <laughs> Well, that's just a misunderstanding of the argument. The argument is not whatever exists has a cause. The argument is whatever begins to exist has a cause. God, by definition, never began to exist. He's eternal. He always existed. In fact, um, before he created time, 
uh, at the creation of the world, um, there was simply timelessness before that. And by the way, atheists shouldn't have any problem with something being eternal because they used to maintain that the universe was eternal until the scientific discoveries of the last 50 years have disproven them. So now, based on just simple, this simple argument for the existence of God, we can draw some conclusions about what he's like. First, he must be transcendent because he exists apart from creation. Second, he must be immaterial or spirit because he existed before the material world came into being. Third, he must be timeless or eternal because he existed before physical time was created. Number four, he must be powerful given the incredible immensity of the creation event. Fifth, he must be smart given the precision of the creation event. Six, he must be personal because he had to make the decision to create. Number seven, he must be uh, creative because look at the beauty and the complexity of the universe. Number eight, he must be loving because he so carefully crafted a habitat for us to flourish in. And then finally, the scientific principle of Occam's razor tells us it would be just one creator. So think about this, what have we got? Transcendent, spirit, eternal, powerful, smart, personal, creative, caring, unique. Friends, that is a description of the God of the Bible. In fact, just because, because there is just one creator, this rules out polytheistic religions which claim there are many gods. And since the creator is separate from his creation, this rules out pantheistic religions which claim that um, uh, everything is God. And since the universe is not slick, cyclical, this contradicts Eastern philosophies. So just this one scientific series of discoveries that established that the universe had a beginning goes a long way toward establishing with credibility that God is real. And then that case for God being real is amplified by a second area of science, which is physics. Physics are just the numbers that govern the operation of the universe. Psalm 19 verse one says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Friends, one of the most striking discoveries of modern physics, a series of discoveries that just go back about 50 years, show that the the laws and the constants of physics, in other words, the numbers that govern the operation of the universe, unexpectedly conspire in an absolutely extraordinary way to make our universe habitable for life. In other words, our universe is finely tuned on a razor's edge so that life can exist. So finely tuned, it, 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 it defies the idea that this could have just happened by mere chance. It's best explained as the work of a creator. Let me put it this way. It's like if you go out on a summer night, you're in the middle of nowhere, you know, in the sky, and there's no clouds, and, and you look up and you expect to see a sky full of stars, but on this night, you don't see a, a, sky, a sky full of stars. On this night, you see 50 to 100 giant dials in the sky. 
giant dials and each one could be calibrated to, to, to one of trillions or trillions or trillions of possible settings. And yet every one of those dials is absolutely perfectly calibrated so that life can exist. That is a picture that modern physics gives us of our universe. I'll give you a couple examples. One of the numbers that governs the operation of the universe is the force of gravity. Everybody knows what gravity is, right? You drop a pencil, it's gonna hit the ground. But uh, gravity could have been set at any one of trillions of possible settings. In fact, if you took a ruler that went all the way across the entire universe, 15 billion light years, a, a ruler broken down in one inch increments, this represents the plausible range along which the force of gravity could have been set. Anywhere along that range, it could have been set, the number for gravity, and yet it's set at the exact right place so that life can exist. What if we were to change it? What if we were to change it one inch compared to the 15 billion light year width of the universe? If we did that, intelligent life would be impossible anywhere in the universe. That's just one of these dials, so to speak, in the sky that govern the operation of the universe. Another example is a strong nuclear force. This is what binds together the nucleus of atoms. But it's so perfectly calibrated that if you were just to change the strong nuclear force just a tiny, tiny bit, in fact, if you were to decrease it just one part in 10,000 billion, 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 all we would have in the universe would be hydrogen. There would be no life possible. I mean, this is absolutely mind-blowing. I, I asked one famous physicist, I said, you know, given the, the, the precision, the calibration, the incredible settings that, that allow the universe to support life, I said, what are the chances that it could have happened just by mere chance? And he looked at me and said, well, we scientists have a term for that. I said, what is it? He said, ain't going to happen just ain't good. It's ridiculous to consider that it would. The evidence is so dramatic that Dr. Vera Kistiakowski, former professor of physics at MIT, former president of the Association of Women in Science, put it this way. She said, the exquisite order displayed by our understanding, scientific understanding of the physical world calls for the divine. In other words, she said, you look at the universe and you got to believe that God is real. Now, how do atheists try to get around this? Well, they get around it, they think, by saying that maybe, you know, what if there were an infinite number of other invisible universes that we don't know about? And if you flip the dials in an infinite number of universes, sooner or later, one of them's going to hit the jackpot just by chance, and that happens to be our universe. Well, there's some problems with that. Number one, there is absolutely no physical evidence whatsoever for an infinite number of other invisible universes. In fact, one famous um, theoretical physicist in Germany recently uh, did an interview with a newspaper in which she said um, that this is a scientific waste of time, in her opinion. Um, she said it's, a, it's an idea that's much more popular with the media than it is with actual scientists. Um, besides which... If one universe requires an explanation, then an infinite number of universes requires an even bigger explanation, and that points even more powerfully toward God. Friends, I'll tell you what, I, I was an atheist for much of my life. 
And I mean, I was an atheist before this kind of evidence um, became um, um, popularized and accessible within the last 50 years or so. But I'll tell you what, if I were an atheist still today, and all I had to go on was the evidence of cosmology and physics, I would believe that God is real, just on that. But then we can go further. We can go further and determine which God is real. Which God is real. For that, we have to look at a different kind of evidence. We have scientific evidence that helps us establish that God is real. But then we have to look at historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ established that he really is the son of God and therefore Christianity among the various options is true. The apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. In other words, this is the ball game. Why? Because Jesus, in a variety of different ways, made transcendent and messianic and divine claims about himself. He claimed to be the son of God. At one point, he got up before a group like this, and he said, I and the Father are one. And the Greek word for one there is not masculine, it's neuter, which means Jesus was not saying, I and the Father are the same person. He was saying, I and the Father are the same thing. We're one in nature. We're one in essence. And how did the audience understand what he was saying? Well, they picked up stones to kill him because they said, you, you're just a man and you're claiming to be God. So Jesus claimed to be God, but so what? Anybody could claim to be God. But if Jesus claimed to be God, died, and then three days later rose from the dead, that's pretty good evidence he's telling the truth, right? I mean, that's why the resurrection is the key. And, And I suggest that proving the resurrection of Jesus Christ is as simple as A, B, C. It's an historical issue. We can investigate it, just as we investigate any issue or any event of history. But this is as simple as A, B, C. Number one, Jesus was alive at point A. Number two, Jesus was dead at point B. And number three, Jesus was alive again at point C. If we can establish those things, We've established the resurrection of Jesus. So let's talk about the fact that Jesus was alive at point A. Virtually every scholar on the planet agrees that Jesus of Nazareth actually did live in the first century. My friend, uh, the great historian, Dr. Gary Habermas, wrote a book called The Historical Jesus, in which he documents 39 ancient sources referencing Jesus from which he enumerates more than 100 facts about Jesus' life, teachings, miracles, death, and resurrection. And yet, the internet buzzes with the claim that Jesus never really lived at all. But rather, Jesus is a myth. He's a story. He's a legend. He's mythology. And he was modeled after earlier mythological gods. It's a very popular claim if you go on the internet. In other words, they say Christianity is a copycat religion that plagiarized, that stole the idea of Jesus and his resurrection from ancient mythological stories. And some people buy it. Some people believe that. A recent poll just came out a couple weeks ago showed that a quarter 
of all non-Christian Americans say they are either absolutely sure or somewhat certain that Jesus never lived at all. People who propagate this claim are called mythicists. For example, they'll tell you, well, didn't you know that there was a mythological god named Mithras long before Jesus? Mithras was born of a virgin in a cave on December the 25th. He was a great traveling teacher. He had 12 disciples. He sacrificed himself for world peace. He was buried in a tomb, and he rose again on the third day. Doesn't that sound familiar? And the implication is this is is where Christianity got the idea of Jesus and the same kind of stuff. But you know what? I'm a journalist. I investigate things. And so I checked out the historical record. And you know what I found? I investigated the story of Mithras. And when you look at the actual story of Mithras, number one, um, there was no cave. There was no virgin. But Mithras supposedly emerged fully grown out of a rock wearing a hat. He was naked except wearing a hat. Um, That's supposedly how he was born. Was he born on December 25th? Well, that's what the ancient myth said, but so what? We don't know when Jesus was born. The Bible doesn't give us the date of Jesus' birth. There's dispute about when that might have happened. We chose the area around the winter solstice to celebrate it because we don't have the exact date that he was born. Many scholars believe he was born in the spring. Um, So that parallel is irrelevant. And Mithras was never a great traveling teacher with 12 disciples. One version said he had one disciple. Another version said he had two disciples. Did Mithras sacrifice himself for world peace? No. Mithras was known because he killed a bull. That that was all he was known for. Didn't sacrifice himself for anything. Was he killed and then buried in a tomb and resurrected in three days? No, there's no record anywhere about the death of Mithras, and so no claim about a resurrection. So look what happened. When you investigate the claims, the parallels to Christianity disappear. Here's the truth, according to a recent academic treatise by a senior Swedish scholar. Quote, the nearly universal consensus of scholars around the world is that there are no examples of any mythological gods dying and rising from the dead that came before Jesus. These resurrection myths came after Christianity. So if anybody was stealing any ideas, it was going in the other direction. Even the agnostic New Testament scholar Bart Bart Ehrman, who was no friend to Christianity, wrote a book attacking this idea that Jesus was merely a myth. He said, quote, the claim that Jesus was simply made up falters on every ground. And rather than succeeding in debunking religion, mythicists just make themselves look foolish. And he ends this book with these words. Jesus did exist, whether we like it or not. So friends, there's no question about this first point. Point A, Jesus was alive at point A. Second point, Jesus was dead at point B. In other words, he was killed by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. Now, this is denied by about 1.6 billion people around the planet. They're known as Muslims. 
And if you go to the Quran, which I've read, and you look at Surah 4, verse 157, it says that Jesus was not crucified. He was not killed under Pontius Pilate. He didn't die on the cross, and therefore there was no resurrection. But what's the evidence? I mean, set religion aside. Let's just look at the historical data. What does it show? Well, you know, we're lucky in ancient history if we have one source to confirm a fact, or maybe two sources to confirm a fact, and yet for the death of Jesus Christ by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate, we not only have multiple accounts of this in the four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament of the Bible, all written within the lifetimes of Jesus' contemporaries, but we have another report that dates back immediately after the event itself, too quick, to merely be a legend. And then we have five ancient sources outside the Bible confirming and corroborating the fact that Jesus was executed. And that's a lot of historical data that he really was dead after being crucified. What, what does Muslims have on the other side? Well, with all due respect, 600 years after Jesus lived, Muhammad says an angel in a cave told him it wasn't true. So just set aside religion, set aside faith. Let's look at the data of history. And when we do that, we see that point B, Jesus was truly dead after being crucified. Friends, there is no evidence anywhere of anyone ever surviving a full Roman crucifixion. In fact, no less of a source than the Journal of the American Medical Association, a secular, scientific, peer-reviewed medical journal carried an investigation into the death of Jesus, and this was their conclusion, quote, clearly the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. In fact, you could go to an atheist New Testament scholar like Gerd Ludeman of Vanderbilt University, and he'll tell you, quote, Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. In, that's the atheist historian speaking indisputable. So Jesus was truly alive at point A. He was definitely dead at point B. But then comes the big issue. Was he really alive again at point C? Well, we have two strands of evidence for this. The first is that his tomb was empty. His tomb was empty. The historical records tells us that Jesus' uh, body was laid in a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Jewish council. It's sealed, it's guarded, and yet it's discovered empty that first Easter morning. Now, there are lots of historical reasons to establish that the tomb was empty, but I think the most convincing to me is that even the enemies of Jesus admitted that the tomb was empty. Everybody conceded that the tomb was empty. How do we know? Because we know from sources inside and outside the New Testament that when the disciples began proclaiming that Jesus had risen, what the enemies of Jesus said was, oh, well, um, the disciples stole the body. Now think about that. What is that? That's a cover story. They're implicitly admitting the tomb is empty. They're trying to explain how it got empty. You see what I'm saying? It's like if you're a, a, a teacher and a student comes up to you and says, the dog ate my homework. That student's admitting, look, I don't have my homework, but I can explain what happened to it, the dog ate it. It's the same thing. 
So everybody in the first century, whether they're disciples of Jesus or enemies of Jesus, implicitly or explicitly, were admitting that the tomb of Jesus was empty. That's not the issue of history. The issue of history really is, how did it get empty? And you go through the usual list of suspects. The Romans weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus dead. The Jewish leaders of the day weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus to stay dead. The disciples weren't about to steal the body. They didn't have the motive. They didn't have the means. And they didn't have the opportunity. Besides which, I found seven ancient sources, six of them outside the Bible, that tell us that the disciples lived lives of deprivation and suffering as a result of their proclamation that Jesus had risen. Why were they willing to do that? Why, because they heard on CNN that he'd been resurrected? No, because they were there. They touched him, they talked with him, they ate with him. Of all human beings who've ever existed on the planet, the disciples knew for a fact whether this is true or whether it's a lie. And knowing it was true, they were willing even to die for it. That tells me something about the veracity of their claims. But of course, the empty tomb doesn't by itself establish that Jesus was alive after his death. But we have another line of evidence, and that is the disciples were absolutely convinced that he had risen from the dead and had appeared physically to them. Remember how I said we're lucky in ancient history if we have one or two sources to confirm a fact? Well, get this. For the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources, inside and outside the New Testament, confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the risen Jesus. Friends, that is an avalanche of historical data. In my book, I interview a prominent historian uh, who wrote a, um, like a 700-page book about the resurrection of Jesus, the historical evidence, uh, got his PhD from the University of Pretoria in South Africa on the resurrection, uh, Dr. Michael Lacona. And in my book, he lays out all of these sources, but I'll hit them real quickly. First of all, we have a creed of the earliest church that reports the resurrection with named eyewitnesses and groups of eyewitnesses, including skeptics and including 500 people at once. And this creed has been dated back immediately after the crucifixion. That's how immediate and early it is. The eminent historian, Dr. James D.G. Dunn said, this tradition, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as a tradition within months of Jesus' death. Much too early to write it off as a legend that grew up in the centuries after his death. We also have Paul's testimony about the disciples. He confirmed he encountered the resurrected Jesus, and he knew the, he, he, he came, became friends with the other disciples, and he said, we're all saying the same thing. I encountered the resurrected Jesus, so do they. So he's confirming it. Then we have Peter's testimony. Peter got up before a group like this just a few weeks after the death of Jesus in the very same city where Jesus had been killed. And he said, men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus, a man attested to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which he did in your midst. You know that he did. He said, this Jesus, God is raised from the dead, to which we're all witnesses. And how do they respond? 3,000 people said, Peter, we know you're telling us the truth. What do we do? And they repented, and the church was born. 
So we have Peter's testimony. Then we have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They document nine appearances of the risen Jesus. These are first century reports that bear all of the earmarks of accuracy and historical reliability. And then we have sources outside the New Testament. We have some writings by people who personally sat under the teachings of the disciples, and they report what the disciples told them. We have Clement, who was ordained by Peter himself. We have Polycarp, who was appointed bishop uh, at Smyrna by John himself. And they wrote letters confirming that the reason the disciples had so much confidence is because they encountered the resurrected Jesus. So these are nine sources that reflect multiple, very early testimony to the disciples' conviction that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. So how, how persuasive is that? How persuasive is it? Does that only convince evangelical Christians? Well, let me tell you about a guy who, when I was in law school, was my hero because he was the greatest lawyer who ever lived. Um, he was in the Guinness Book of World Records as the greatest attorney that ever existed. I don't know if any, we have any lawyers here, but I'm about to blow your mind. This guy, as a defense attorney, won 245 murder trials in a row, either before the jury or on appeal. I mean, he was, he was the greatest lawyer in the Guinness Book of World Records, greatest lawyer ever lived. He was knighted twice by Queen Elizabeth. He became a member of the Supreme Court of his nation. His name was Sir Lionel Lucku. And he was a skeptic about the resurrection, just as I was back then when I was at Yale Law School. And I, I admired him. But then one day, someone came to him and said, Sir Lionel, you're the greatest lawyer who's ever lived. Have you ever taken your monumental legal skill and applied it to the historical record for the resurrection and come to an informed conclusion about whether Jesus really did return from the dead? He said, no, I never have, but I will. And so he spent two years analyzing the historical record for the resurrection of Jesus. This is a man who was able to take what looks like an airtight case against his client and find all the loopholes, all the problems with it. This is a man who knows what credible evidence is and isn't. And he spent two years doing that. And I'll recite to you one sentence he wrote in his conclusion. He said, quote, I say unequivocally that the evidence for the res resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. This from the greatest lawyer who ever lived. In fact, I told that story at a church out in California where I, I was a teaching pastor. I just joined this church many years ago. And um, a woman came up to me after the service and said, hey, you just moved into our neighborhood. I'm your new neighbor. I said, oh, that's great. She said, yeah, I'm Sir Lionel's sister. His sister. And I got to know her, and she showed me a lot of his private papers of his investigation and so forth. She confirmed every detail of that story. Friends, can I tell you something? God is real. God is real. And the evidence from science, from history, support the conclusion. It is rational. It is logical to conclude that God is real. That's the good news. But there's even better news. The fact that God is real, that's good news. But the better news is he loves you. He loves you. He created you. He created you for a purpose. 
He loves you. You can have a personal relationship with him in this world. And you can be confident that when you pass from this world into the next, you will spend eternity with him forever. So let me close by talking to two groups of people here. The first group is most of us, you're already a child of God. You've already become a follower of Jesus. And you're confident of that, and, and, and you enjoy having a relationship with him. But what I got to say to you is, we're, every single follower of Jesus is instructed in 1 Peter 3.15 to be able to give an answer to anyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have and to do it gently and respectfully. Uh, in other words, we need, to be, we need to understand not just what we believe as Christians, that God is real. Yeah, we need to understand that. We need to understand why we believe what we believe. Because we live in an increasingly skeptical and even hostile world. I was talking to a guy whose granddaughter was a first grade student in a public school. And she was on the playground at recess. And the other students were taunting her and making fun of her because she believes in God. Oh, you believe in fairy tales. You still believe in make-believe. Friends, our children and our grandchildren are going to be challenged in their faith in a way that my generation was not. And we need to be prepared to give reasons for why we believe that God is real. And the reasons are abundant. I talk about them in my book. There's other books available and so. But I think we need to equip ourselves to understand and teach our children why it is that we believe that God is real. Second group I'll mention are those who may have come here today and you're not sure where you stand with God. You're not sure. If I asked you, do you know for a fact that God has redeemed you, he's adopted you as his son or as his daughter, and you will spend eternity with him forever. Do you have confidence in that? You know, the, the first verse I ever memorized as a new Christian is in the book of 1 John. It says, these things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. That you know. Do you know? Are you confident? Are you sure? I mean, that verse tells us God doesn't want you in a state of ambiguity or uncertainty or anxiety over where you stand with him. You can have confidence that you have been adopted as his son, adopted as his daughter. You can have a relationship with him. I mean, know that you will spend eternity with him in heaven. Do you know? Are you sure? Well, let me just offer a prayer. If you want to be sure, if you want to know for a fact, the Bible says, John 1:12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And if you receive his free gift of forgiveness and eternal life and a prayer of repentance and faith, the Bible says you can have confidence that you will spend eternity with him forever. So let's close our eyes and bow our heads. And if you want to take that step, I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird. Just, in fact, you don't have to say anything out loud. God knows your heart. Just in your heart, say, Lord Jesus, as best I can, I do believe that you are the Son of God. You proved it by returning from the dead. And right now, I confess the obvious, which is that I'm a sinner. I know that. 
And I want to confess that, and I want to turn from that. And in an attitude of repentance and faith, I want to receive. I want to receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that you purchased for me on the cross when you died as my substitute to pay for all of my sin. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me so much that you endured the torture of the cross so that we could be reconciled forever. Help me to live the kind of life that you want me to live. Because from this moment on, I am yours. And now, Father, we know from your word that anyone who confesses their sin, repents from that, receives your free gift of grace that you have adopted them as your son, as your daughter forever. And we pray this would be the start of a great adventure of a relationship with you that will be rich and real and exciting. And we thank you that when the end of our time comes in this world, you will swing open the doors of heaven for us forever. Thank you for that. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the, especially the Christmas season and all that it means. We celebrate the birth of your son whose purpose in being born was to die, to pay the payment for our sins so that we could be reconciled with you forever. It's the greatest story ever told. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Hey, church. Thanks for listening to the Woodlands Church with Carrie Shook podcast. By listening, we hope that you're encouraged wherever you are. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast so that you can get the latest messages each week. For more information on Woodlands Church, check out the description for a link to our website and how to connect with us. We hope you have a great week.